if you have a Bible with you, could I ask you to turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. And um, I'm just going to ask Dan to come in and read this scripture for us today. We're reading from verse 13 to verse 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Thanks. So this is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our sovereign king of the universe, we, we ask for your blessing on us here today as we consider your word. And, and Father, we ask that you would just be glorified through the preaching of your truth. And Lord, that you would build us up as your, as your precious children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I greet you in the name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I ask you, is God not very good? Amen. All the time. He's very good indeed. Uh, I have titled this sermon, Salt and Light, The Believer's Influence in the World. That's the point of our text today. Influence. We are to be an influence in the world for Christ. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, who had his presidency in the late 1800s, once told the following story. He said, I was in a very common place. I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut, and he sat down in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before long, I realized that I was in an evangelistic service. Can we just turn the gain down? Uh, okay, I've, I realized I was in an evangelistic service because Mr. Dwight L. Moody was in that chair. I purposefully lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that this man's visit had brought upon the shop. They talked in undertones. They did not know his name, but he had left with them having elevated thoughts. And I felt that as I left that place, I had left a place of worship. My admiration and my esteem for Mr. Moody became very deep indeed. Another interesting story is that of Lord Peterborough, who was a relatively famous atheist and skeptic. And he encountered a Christian man named Francois Fenelon. And Fenelon so loved the Lord, so communed with him, so walked in holiness, that it was said that his face shone. Lord Peterborough once happened to be stuck at the same inn overnight with Fenelon. And he scurried away the next day to find another inn, proclaiming, if I spend one more night with that man, I will become a Christian in spite of myself. <laughs> another one, we have the example of the Scottish minister, Dr. Murray McShane. It was often said of him that his face was lit up with a hallowedness such that others would fall to their knees in repentance. 
They were so attracted by the beauty of holiness, the compelling presence of God in his life and upon his face, that they were compelled to Christ. Isn't that amazing? Influence. That's influence. So as we now explore our text today, my prayer is that uh, each of us would be challenged to honestly evaluate the impact that we have, the influence that we have in this world. Do we shine with the very likeness of Christ? When you pass by, what are people saying when you've gone? Let's look at the text and see what Jesus taught about this. So we have jumped right into the middle of a chapter here. Okay? Uh, chapter 5 is the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, uh, 5, 6, and 7. And uh, we are actually jumping into the middle of chapter 5. And we don't have time to do an overview of the whole Sermon on the Mount because a lot of preachers have taken more than 30 sermons just to cover those three chapters. Uh, and some people just on these verses today have done five sermons. So we, we're, we're, cramming in a, we're cramming in a bit. But today, the, this text does pull in a lot of the themes that are present in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's sandwiched between verses 1 to 12 and verses 21 to 48 in chapter 5. And in these first 12 verses, Jesus is describing the kingdom norms. He's describing what it's like for people in the kingdom, what people in the kingdom are like. He said that believers are merciful, that they're pure in heart, that they're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, that they are meek, that they are peacemakers. They endure persecution with joy and without retaliation. And in verses 21 to 48, Jesus is describing the new attitudes of believers. He said that believers reconcile with others. They flee from lust. They do not seek to divorce unjustly. They let their yes be yes and their no be no. They do not retaliate and they love their enemies. Now Jesus is saying, you know, this is the kind of people that believers are. This is what they're like. This is what they do because of who I am. This is the way that you must influence the world. So being salt and light assumes what Jesus has said and is going to be saying in this whole chapter. And as we become people of God's kingdom, as we become sons of the king, we manifest these characteristics, right? And then we will have real influence on the world. This comes, though, at the risk and, in fact, the likelihood and, more than that, even the promise of persecution, but yet we count it as the disciples who were beaten. They counted it as joy and they went out looking for, they were emboldened. They looked for more ways in which to share the gospel. So I don't know about you, but for me, this sounds incredibly tough. In fact, it actually sounds impossible. And that's because it is impossible. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He said, I must go so that the Spirit must come. He left. He said, it's better that I go. How's it better that Jesus, in person, it was better that he went? Because he would send his Holy Spirit so that he would dwell inside of us. With God, all things are possible. And that's why it says, um, but, but the strength of Christ, through the strength of Christ, we can do all things. That doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want to do. It means all the things that God has called you to do, you can do because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. How does this happen, though? How do we live rightly in light of what Jesus said? I think if you if you still got chapter 5 open there and you have a look at verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, 
Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Really? How then will we enter the kingdom of heaven? They spent their whole lives being about trying to obey 613 laws. How is it possible that there is a righteousness that exceeds that? How is it possible that we can be more righteous than men who devote their whole lives to obeying 613 laws? And it says if we don't have a greater righteousness, we will not see the kingdom of heaven. We will perish, consigned to hell. So what righteousness is that, that that's greater, that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. The Pharisees did their best, but like every other man, as Romans 3.23 says, has fallen short, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So even these men, devoting their whole lives to it, couldn't keep the whole law. And what's the result of that? Galatians 3.10 says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All. And, and, and no, no one has done them all except Jesus Christ. And verses 13 and 14 are verses to make a Christian shout for joy. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Incredible. He became a curse for us so that we could receive the promised spirit by faith. Not only did Jesus accomplish all righteousness, but he gives us his very righteousness himself as a gift through faith and repentance. And then he fills us with his spirit. See, when we made new creations in Christ, we have his righteousness counted to us. And because of this, we can actually grow in righteousness. We can do righteous things. We can obey the law, not for salvation, but from it. Therefore, we are no longer under a curse. See, God sees us as righteous in Christ, and then he calls us to good works as the fruit that flow from that. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees essentially the same thing he said to Nicodemus. You must be born again or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in contrast to this, if we go to Matthew chapter 23, in 25 and 26, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. One of the greatest scourges he gave them in scripture. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup that the outside may also be clean. And this was a judgment because we cannot clean the inside of our cup. It must be cleaned by regeneration. You must be born again. God has to do it. When a Pharisee does external deeds, he is a hypocrite because how he's trying to act on the outside is different from how he is on the inside. But when a Christian 
Someone who is born again does good works. He is being consistent because they come from the outside, from the inside out. Our light, our actions in the world point to a true internal reality, a true reality of the kingdom of God and its king, Jesus Christ. Just before we really go into the text, there's something else I think we need to bear in mind. Jesus is talking to believers here in our text. He's saying, you are the salt. You are the light. Right? Only believers are the salt. Only believers are the light. If we lose our saltiness, if believers lose their saltiness, there is no salt that remains. If believers cover their light, there is no light that remains. That's why we sang... Build your church, your kingdom here. We are the hope on earth. He's made us salt and light in this world. And so if we lose our saltiness, cover our light, that hope is hidden. And some people may say, well, I just don't feel that I'm called to be salt and light. And now the emphasis moves to R from you. Not you are salt and light. It's you are salt and light. That's who you are. If you're born again, if you're remade in the image of Christ, you are salt and light. And by the way, that you is plural. Okay? It's the body of believers, which obviously is made up of believers. So he's talking to you, but he's talking to you. Right? It's the church. The church is a corporate testimony to the work of Jesus Christ on the earth. To influence the world is a collective effort. What can one grain of salt do to your food? Not much. What can one beam of light do to a whole world of darkness? It's not enough to be at it alone. We need to be in community, salt and light together. Grains of salt, beams of light. There was one beam of light which lights up the universe, Jesus Christ. But we are not God, right? We are not God. God is in us, but we are not God. Right? We are a collective beams of light. Um, the good news, though, is if you say, how do I become light? How do I become salt? What I've just said is Jesus said, you are salt. You are light. He's not saying, please become salt. Please become light. He's saying, this is what I have done in you when I made you new. The only thing that can happen is the diminishing of saltiness or the covering of the light. So that's what we're going to look at. So, verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt. The Bible makes many references to salt. Okay, there's, there's a few that uh, would uh, include, there was a covenant of salt mentioned in Leviticus 2.13. Uh, the judgment of God against Lot's wife, who was turned into a pillar of salt in Genesis 19.26. And uh, if you really were having like a bad fight with your neighbor, uh, one of the ways in which you could retaliate was to salt his fields and his crops would die. Mm. That's Judges 9.45. When men made covenants, they would sometimes throw salt over their shoulder or they would eat salt together uh, in front of witnesses. They weren't notary publics. You would have witnesses and they saw the two men eating salt and they would say they are bonded together. And the witnesses would testify to that. So salt has has meant a a lot of things um, in in Scripture. Uh, But uh, this is a different context altogether. Okay, we're not talking about uh, any of these activities. We're talking about the fact that believers are salt. 
So there's a number of possibilities, uh, and commentators suggest a broad range of things, usually a mix of things. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you six, and we're going to say that the sixth one is the, is the main one, but all have an element of truth. The first is that salt is pure. A believer, then, is pure, right? A kind of shimmering, pure, righteous, holy, set-apart, bright, brilliant light in comparison to the world, which contains so much dark and depraved and unrestrained evil. Uh, they, in contrast to the world, they will not be a person who is self-indulgent and selfish and proud. They'll be somebody who upholds a divine standard. They have a lightness to them to be around. Purity, a glimmer of hope. Right? That's certainly true of what believers should be like in the world. Second, salt adds flavor. Believers then add flavor to the world. Now, some some people go nuts on this as if like this is the main point. It's not the main point, but it is important. Right? Uh, there's a sense in which this has to be true. Listen, Christians add a flavor to life. They have an aroma of hope about them. They're new creations, right? They have a message of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, joy, peace in Jesus Christ. They have an aroma, a fragrance of Christ about them. So it's definitely fair to say that based on the fact that um, Jesus promised persecution for believers, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to like the flavor that you add to the world, right? But it's definitely true that Christians do add a flavor to the world through their influence. Thirdly, salt stings. Now, this is not thought about very often, but it's also really important. See, salt indicates that there is a wound. And when it applies, it stings and disinfects, cleans, yeah. Okay, so there's a sense in which the pronouncement of truth convicts of sin, right? It stings and it has the potential to heal by pointing to Christ. That's why the gospel is a stumbling block and offense, right? You may not add any extra offense to it by your own personal revelations and whatever, because it has an offense of itself that's enough. So we are not meant to be abrasive and add anything to it, but it is going to offend, Right? And we'll come to this, that that's not a reason not to. We'll come to that later. So most, most people are very scared to offend, and so they, dist- they actually distort the truth. They compromise the content of the gospel. Who are you to say, God, this is just too hectic. I've got to make some amendments here to make this more palatable. Right? God is in the business of raising people from the dead. Don't change the message. I'll give you an example of this. So um, I was chatting to a young man a couple of weeks ago who told me that he was, he was, he's, he's always been looking for God. He's really looking for God, but God just hasn't you know, answered him. And so I asked him some questions about his life, and we, we chatted a little, little while. And, and so I said to him at the end, I said, you have absolutely no interest in finding God because then you're going to have to give up your sleeping around. And I didn't say it in a nasty way. And he actually wasn't even offended at how I said it, but he was offended by what I had said. But it, it, it struck at something. It put a crack in something. And he hadn't thought or been told something like this, so he leant into the conversation to ask, 
what do you mean? And I got to open up and share the gospel with him. And look, he may have hit me, or he may have run away, or whatever, but how he reacts to that is not up to me. But that I present the truth is up to me. And, and I have to trust that the Spirit of God is going to do his work. I don't get to say, God, you should be doing this. God, you should be doing that. He has said to me, you should be doing this. And so I must be about doing it, trusting that the Spirit of God is at work. We need to be prepared to cause discomfort in the short term in order to bring eternal healing. It's a matter of perspective. Fourth, salt creates thirst. One of the reasons that you have salt in your body is to regulate your thirst, your water retention. You have to drink to stay alive. A believer then can create a thirst by the way in which he lives his life. Right? Has somebody come up to you before and said, what is it about you? Why are you always so hopeful? Um, why have I never heard you swearing? Why do this? Why do that? It, it, you create a thirst. People go, what is going on in that person's life? Right? He just got fired and he's full of joy. Either he has a, a mental problem or this thing is real. You know? it, that's, that's what, that's what uh, can be the effect. Right? That's creating a thirst. Fifth, salt is referred to as, as having a connotation to wisdom. Right? That's certainly true. We have what God has done to us is make us wise for salvation. It's the greatest wisdom available. Now, God distributes, I'm going to preach in a, in a, whenever it is on, on, on wisdom, right? So we'll go into some more details. But God has, has given us wisdom unto salvation. He's given us his word, right? And he's put his spirit in us, who is the spirit of wisdom. And God, in his kindness and his mercy, has given gifts of wisdom right throughout the world. So you can have uh, un unbelievers who have practical wisdom in daily life. But there's a wisdom that far supersedes that, and that's the wisdom unto salvation. Believers have wisdom. And so they are, as salt, they are wisdom in the, in the world. And sixth, salt is a preservative. Now this is considered by and large, to be the principal purpose in light of what Jesus has been talking about in the context of these chapters, right? The main functional daily use for salt was to preserve meat, okay? And it was rubbed into the meat and absorbed, and it prevented decay, all right? And that's what Christians do. We are a preservative. We are a restraint against decay in this world. And it's necessary... Because things are getting worse, and there is no way around it, right? 2 Timothy 3.13 says, Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. And Matthew 24.12 says, Lawlessness will be increased. Okay? The love of many will grow cold. Right? And there will be wars and rumors of wars and tribulation and uh, people will be uh, gluttonous and wicked and it says they will abound in murder like they do in the United States. Um, and it is getting far, far, far worse. But believers are restraint on decay. And this is a mercy from God because the slower the decay, the more time that the gospel message is going out and God is gathering his people together. We are preservative in this world. We are meant to be influencers of it, not influenced by it. But what happens when the world becomes the influencer? 
Because the next verse says, what about uh, losing your saltiness? What happens when a believer does not live and walk in accordance with who they are and what God has called them to? He loses his saltiness. Now, chemically, it's not possible for salt to lose its saltiness. The molecule is in ACL. It's a very stable compound, right? But we have a water distillation process, that, uh, evaporation process, that leaves pure salt in modern times. But they used to get salt from salt marshes, right? They didn't have the same technology we do. So it was full of impurities. And these salt mounds would, uh, the, the actual salt was more soluble than the impurities in which it was mixed. So the salt would d- dissolve in water and leach out. And so what you were left with was this useless pile of dirt that, and, it, and with a tiny bit of saltiness to it, right? Some of the salt remains, but completely useless. Can't preserve, can't flavor, can't do anything. And that's, that's why Jesus says, what good is one who loses his salt? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's, that's, that's not out of the kingdom, but that's out of influence. Thrown out of influence. Thrown out of effectiveness in mission. Right? Um, what was interesting is this scattered residue, this weak residue, they'd take it and they'd either chuck it in the road where it'd be, people would walk on it, right? Trampled underfoot, we walked on, and, and harden, harden the roads. Or it'd be put on the roofs because they would gather on the roof. That was where the social type stuff happened. And uh, to, it would help waterproofing because it would compact and be nice and, and hard and waterproof. And so it would be trampled underfoot there too. So either way you look at it, what Jesus is saying makes sense to that image. It would be thrown out or put on the roof and trampled underfoot. The purpose then is that this is not about the science, it's about the principle, right, of being effective and not losing your saltiness. I want to make it really clear though, the idea of losing saltiness has nothing to do with losing salvation. John 6 makes it absolutely clear that no true believer can lose his salvation. No one can pluck you from Jesus Christ's hand. He says, all that the Father has given to me, I will, I will lose none of them. I will raise it up on the last day. Okay, so we're not talking about salvation. If the, um, but, but they definitely can lose effectiveness. And if the disciples are called to be a preservative, if we as disciples are called to be a preservative that prevent decay and act as a moral disinfectant, how can we act in that regard if we ourselves are infected. See, the Greek verb for losing its saltiness is moranthe. And it means uh, it's connected with salt here and in Luke 13, uh, 43. But in Romans 1.22 and Corinthians 1.20, it's used in its more daily uh, fashion of Greek use, which means to have become or to be made foolish. So disciples who have lost their saltiness have become Foolish, right? They compromise their effectiveness in the mission of the gospel. And we know this to be true, don't we? Holy people bear effective witness. What did Paul say? I didn't come with like wise words of persuasion, but in demonstration of the power of God, right? His holiness empowers witness. See, maybe no one sees your anger behind closed doors or in the car on the road. Or maybe no one sees the the lust in your heart. 
Maybe no one has discovered your racism. Maybe your foul language to yourself when you think no one's watching. But the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for the righteous ones. And you know that your witness is compromised by it. Your saltiness is lost. So my encouragement to you is the same that came from Paul to the Ephesians in chapter 4, that you would live a life worthy of your calling in Christ. Then your witness will be empowered, right? And the great news is God has sent us his spirit. Listen, we've all tried to do this in the flesh, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting to try and be uh, salt, It's exhausting to try and love your neighbor. It's exhausting to try and give someone a lift. It's exhausting to try and try and try and try. But why would you try to finish in the flesh what God began in the spirit? That's the message to us in Romans 8. That's the really good news, is that he has given us his spirit. So we, we just need to be the salt that God has made us. Don't put obstacles in your own way. Um, It's not pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of holiness. It's fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's know and love God. It's spend time in his presence. How do you think those guys' faces glowed? Right? They were in God's presence all the time. They were men of of great prayer. And we're going to speak of an example of that later too. So let's move to verse 14. You are the light, a city on the hill. Light's one of the most common symbols in Scripture, right? It's everywhere. God is light. Christ is light. And God's people are light. And now while in the metaphor of salt, people will taste and see the holiness and the goodness of God, in the metaphor of light, people will see the goodness and holiness of God. Both function to draw people towards the kingdom of God. Um, But the kingdom of God is radiating through his people into the world, right? Amazing. Light symbolizes purity in in contrast to wickedness. It it, it contrasts adoption with abandonment. It symbolizes divine revelation in contrast to hardening. And it symbolizes truth in contrast to falsehoods. This is continued with the imagery of a city of a hill. You know, these cities were often built of a white limestone. They would gleam from far away in the day, reflecting the sun. And at night, they would be filled with people's lamps. And so the whole city would glow, and you could see it from far off. What's the point? There was no hiding the city. You're a city on a hill. You're there to be seen. And so what is this like? Well, it's a number of things. I think verse 16 makes explicit the connection between light and good works, right? When your light is shining, it means that others are seeing your good works. So when you're acting in accordance with who you are in Christ, then your, the work of the Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, become the evidence, become the light that points to the lamp who is Jesus Christ. And then he says something really important. Do not put your lamp under a basket. You know, the start of verse 16 says, let your light shine. So you don't have to muster up what's, right? You don't have to, it's not, not going to happen, right? You're just going to walk around looking like, you know, 
You don't even have to switch it on. It is on. Christ is in you. Right? All you have to do is let it out. All you have to do is not put a basket over it. Okay? All you have to do is be who God created you to be. An image bearer of Christ. Right? This light cannot even be put out from the world because the light is Christ. Is the world going to put out the light? But Christ in your life, you're the one in charge. Of it. You're the one who could put the basket over it. Don't. So let your light shine in the house. Let it shine in the office. Let it shine in the shops. Let it shine at family gatherings. Let it shine in the car. When you withhold it, it's not just you being affected. You're withholding from other people the source that leads to the knowledge of God for salvation. You are not in charge of what other people believe, but you are in charge of what other people see in your life. I'm going to say it again. This is a corporate and an individual effort. Each grain of salt and each beam of light matters in its effect in this world and to God. But one grain of salt is not enough for the world. One beam of light is not enough for the world. And uh, I have a really sad story to, to demonstrate this picture. Like there was a, it was published in a magazine in Kansas, West Kansas. And the, the first picture was a giant wheat field. You, you couldn't see the sides of it, and you couldn't see the end of it, right? Almost curvature of the earth, so big kind of stuff. And the second picture is of a mother inside the farmhouse of that farm, looking extremely distressed. Her small boy had wandered away from the house and into the field. And he was so small that they couldn't see him, and he couldn't see over the wheat fields. So frantically, they spent the day searching for him and couldn't find him. So they got the neighbors and a big search party, and they all now you, scattered out into the field trying to find, uh, find the boy. And after hours and hours of searching, they had to uh, call it a night. And in the morning, they came back with a, a new idea. And the third picture shows them all standing in a row, holding hands, sweeping end to end through the field. And the fourth photo, a truly terrible sight, the boy's father standing over the little body of his son. The ice-cold night had claimed his life. And beneath the picture were the words, Oh God, if only we had joined hands sooner. And in light of this horrific story, we should, we should remember what Jesus said as he looked over the fields. The field is white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. Now, brothers and sisters, our world is full of lost people in the field of this world. They're, they're wandering around in the field of death. And uh, they cannot find their way to the Father's house. They're dying in the cold night of sin. And when the morning comes, it will be too late. So we need to join hands. We need to be a collective community, not our own little search parties. But we need to join hands sweeping through the world as a unified whole, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
And a connection is made here to what the purpose of all of this is. To glorify God. Verse 16 says, We are to let our light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isn't God's glory to be the all-consuming passion of every believer? It's God's own all-consuming passion. For my name's sake, says the Lord. So, this is the reason we should be light. This is the reason we should be salt. Because it brings glory to our Father in heaven who is in the business of saving sinners and raising the dead unto eternal life in Christ. So, if we are really salt and light, whatever we do reflects the mind and will of our Father. And the people will taste and they will see that the Lord is good. See, people don't only hear what we say, but they see what we do. Our witness must not merely be verbal, but it must be lived out in life. And uh, if, if we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk, there is no power in the witness. But the reverse is also true. You can't preach the gospel only by walking the walk, because the gospel is the, the words, the instruction unto life. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. You can attract people, draw people, empower your witness by your walk, but you need to proclaim the gospel because people need to confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead in order for them to be saved. So we need to walk the walk and we need to talk the talk. The point is that it's both. So as we conclude, I'd like to tell you one last story. The writer of the story says, When I was saved during a mighty movement of the Spirit in the city of Glasgow, Scotland, a young lady was saved too. Her name was Helen Ewing. She was just a small girl, but at the very threshold of her new life in Christ, she crowned him Lord absolutely over her life. And she was filled with the Spirit. It was said that rivers of living water simply seemed to flow from her life. Although she died at the age of 22, people all over the nation of Scotland mourned. The church as a whole wept. Hundreds of missionaries all over the world wept and mourned for her. She had no outstanding personality. She never wrote a book. She never spoke at a conference. She never composed a hymn. She was not a preacher. She never traveled more than 200 miles from her home. But when she died people wrote about her life story. Although she died so early in life, she had, led a, she had led a great multitude of people to Christ. It says that uh, she arose every morning at five o'clock to study God's word, to commune and to pray with him. She had a record of over 300 missionaries that she was praying for all the time. They, found, they discovered her diary and they found the notes and the things she was praying for each one of those missionaries. She had a dynamic prayer life that moved man and moved God. It was also the case that whenever she moved around the campus of the local university, people would say, hush, hush, Helen is coming. They would change their speech. And it was said that after she passed by, there was a definite sense of the presence of God that remained. Uh, Some unbelievers described it as a holy aroma. Unbeliever describes it as a holy aroma. Brothers and sisters, that's influence. This deeply challenges me. We, we need this in this nation. We need people to be salt and light. 
and Christians especially in the area of reconciliation, things are at breaking point. I see at robots and especially on the road, you can see it. People are one mistake away from turning into rage machines at each other, right? It's a false veneer of good behavior on the surface. And then a little crack in that and the monster blows out, right? We, we need to be leading the example in forgiveness, in making peace, in, in generosity, in thoughtfulness, in understanding. We have the Spirit of God in us. We're salt and light. So we're called to influence this nation. I encourage you to think in the week ahead and to pray about being an influence for the glory of God. The Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ. Emissaries. What do ambassadors do? They take and make known the, the will. They make visible the will of their sovereign. Right? In other nations. That's what we're, we're to do. This is, this, God's kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. It's a kingdom that's coming. Right? It's come and it is coming and it will come. Right? We're coming from one nation to another. We are, we are in this world, but we are not of it. It doesn't matter what your responsibilities are, whether you teach, whether you manage a household, whether you work for a company, whether you lead an organization, whether you serve in the community, any, literally anything, whatever you do, you are there to be an influence for Jesus Christ. So get on your knees and say, Lord, how can I be an influence for you as salt and light? How can I use this to be a faithful witness? Be salt and light at home. Be salt and light at the bank. Be salt and light at spa. Be salt and light at SARS. And 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people of his own. Let us act like it. Right? God has called us to be a kingdom of priests. Isn't that amazing? He says, We can take the message, be brought near by the blood of Christ. We can take that message out into the world. We are in it to manifest his kingdom. To bring the presence of God as his dwelling places. Don't know about you, but wherever I walk, I would like the fragrance of Christ to remain behind. And for that, I need to be disciplined in my thought life. I need to spend time with the Lord in worship and in prayer and in thanksgiving. I need to think about and dwell on those Beatitudes and say, this is what Christ has made me. He's made me a peacemaker. He's made me... Each one of us is, is those things. If you're a new believer, you are those things. That is in the start of, of Matthew chapter 5. So I encourage you that you are the hope on earth. If you fear God and love him with all your heart and soul and mind, will people not say of you, that person loves Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, Won't they want to know? Won't you have influence? Let's pray. Our Father, our gracious Heavenly Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to live as salt and light in this world. That you would do that by the power of your spirit and for the glory of your name, Father. Lord, would you let the people who know us, that see us, that we belong to you just by observing the work of our lives, Lord. Would you deliver us from sins that cause us to lose our flavor and make us bold so that we will not cover our light?
We trust that you'll work all of this according to your good pleasure and by the power of your mighty Holy Spirit. We, we love you, God, and we bless your name.